Welcome to Is It Philosophy? For thousands of years, philosophy has been the domain of the elite, a form of thought placed on a tall pedestal. Well, not anymore. I want to take it back to its roots, simply the love of wisdom. A guest will join me each episode as we try to apply critical thinking to a new topic. At the end, it will be up to you to decide. Is it philosophy? All right, everybody, welcome back for our final episode of season two. I'm joined by Josh Herring, and we're going to talk about, is there a God? Very controversial topic. I think it's something that everybody has an opinion on one way or the other. So to start, I want to hear your opinion, Josh. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Matt. I I listened to a little bit of one of your previous episodes. It sounds you've got a great idea and great format. So the, the question, does God exist? I mean, in In terms of personal opinion, conviction, belief, I think the answer is yes, God does exist. But I do think it's a very, there's lots of things that can be proven. I don't think this one can actually be proven, if that makes any sense. I I think it's something you can make plenty of arguments about. But if you, everybody begins from this one with really a fundamental assumption. They either already think, yes, God exists, and I have some reasons for that, or they begin with thinking, no, God doesn't exist. Everyone who thinks he does is deceived or foolish or something. And it's really, this is more of a presuppositional debate than it is necessarily, oh, let's come up with the right proof, and then everyone will agree on the right answer. It's It's a great debate question. My favorite way that people argue this one is especially atheists, I could prove that he doesn't exist. Well, of course you can. It's easy to prove that something doesn't exist, right? I can prove, well, look at this. This is obviously not from God. Why would God create evil, right? That's that's always the one you hear. Why would there be evil in this world if there was a God? I love that argument because it's so easy to to disprove, I guess, for lack of a better term, because if, if it you can't have one without the other, right? So you can't have good without evil. You can't have day without light. So that to me is not evidence or proof of a lack of God. I would agree with you there. And the, the problem of evil is the one that I think people do go to most quickly. And it's the one that uh, theology has the easiest time of, of debunking. Because of course, the, the traditional theistic answers all go back to the reality of free will. And that the existence of evil is ultimately a result of free will, but the other, when I, I've talked with plenty of folks about that, I've, I've heard that I have a few students who would make the same kind of argument. I'm a high school teacher, and I've got plenty of high school students who would say, of course, God doesn't exist. Look, my dad got cancer. Well, that doesn't inherently prove anything. That doesn't, and it also, they, there tends to be this equation where they will say that evil equals suffering. And they they don't go any deeper into that to explain, here's what evil is, and here's why the existence of evil means that the existence of an ultimate good is impossible. But there's a lot of assumptions there, and I'd I'd rather back off from assumptions. And I find the, the more agnostic approach more intellectually respectable to say, at the very least, without having inspected every inch of existence, I cannot conclude that God is not somewhere I haven't been yet. I may not know that he's there, but I can't, pro- I can't prove the negative, so I'm not going to assert the negative. I find that a more respectable position. Yeah, I agree with that. My, my wife and I were actually having a conversation about this recently. The thing that I always hear, too, from, from her, she's atheist, so her, her conversations are quite interesting because she's atheist, I'm Buddhist, so 
whole world of fun conversations revolving around God and religion and, and that thought process. Sure. She grew up in Christianity. She went to a Bible camp and all that stuff. So she can argue that point quite well. And the argument we always have is the idea of an ordered universe. Mm. There has to be a God because look at how ordered and precise and, and everything works exactly the way it's supposed to, to have created life and a universe and all of this stuff. From the outside looking in, I can certainly see how that could be proof, right? That's the end-all be-all proof. But physicists and astrophysicists and all of these people have said, well, no, not necessarily. If you give a chaotic system billions and billions of years, it will eventually fall into order. To say that the order from chaos is essentially proof of God, in my opinion, is kind of false, I'd love to uh, I'd love to know which physicist you're talking about, because I, I, I've not heard that argument before that that simply given enough time, order will result. And instead, I've, I've heard plenty of people make the opposite argument. And at least certainly I would say looking at life and people uh, that the literally the opposite is true. I mean, given enough time, things tend to fall into disorder rather than order. And certainly what my understanding of current quantum mechanics is that at the ordinary level of reality that we perceive through the senses, there's a certain amount of order. Uh, order is still there when you get to the infinitesimally small level of quarks and neutrinos and kind of the quantum level. But the order is a lot different than we still perceive, but it's still there. And that we are able to live in a reality because it's ordered. But when we don't tend that order, that order devolves into chaos at least on the level of kind of what we human beings see. And certainly I think we also see that in terms of agriculture and, uh, and, and animal life. When we ignore animals, they, they don't stay tame. <laughs> they, they go back to a wild state. If I ignore my garden, it doesn't become more ordered. Weeds grow up and my, my crops might grow, but they don't stay in the rows that I planted them. When I ignore my students' behavioral issues, I, I do sometimes because I'm focused on other things, but when I ignore their behavioral issues, they don't tend to behave better. Instead, their behavior gets worse and worse and worse until my classroom environment is really, it's impossible to teach in. So I, I think I would argue on that level that in reality, what we actually see is things, things tend towards disorder and it requires some kind of rational governing to bring them into order. And we see that on the human level, I, I would argue at least that, uh, and this is, um, this is one of Aquinas's traditional arguments for God, that if we see that as true on the human order, that must be true on a cosmic order as well. And that source of order, Aquinas says, all men call God. I will concede to that. I, I can see how, bring back to the, to the idea, and I, I wish I could remember where I read it. It's driving me nuts. I have to look it up and, and post the link after on the, the show notes. You have to send me, send, it, send me the name. I'd be happy to we'd love to go, go read a book and maybe we can come back and have a discussion about the book or something. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to, to look it up again. But I, I remember reading not long ago how if, if you give a system of chaos, that's, that's, and I think it had a lot to do with quantum physics as well and quantum mechanics, how the chaos in there that we perceive, if you will, has over millennia, over the billions of years of time, ordered itself in such a way that it has enabled life to exist. Life came out of that, that quantum state, so to speak. And as it evolved, it ordered itself into the way we see. 
something like that. I, don't quote me on that. Yeah. That's probably way off base from what I actually read. It probably interpreted my own thing into that, but it was it was something along those lines. I, I found that really interesting because that's that's going back too to another one of Aquinas's arguments that I at least think logically makes a lot of sense. One of his arguments is that nothing comes from nothing. Everything must come from something. And he's kind of bringing forward one of Aristotle's old arguments about similar to the idea of motion, that no movement comes from nothing, which Newton's law of inertia tells us the same thing, where that either things at, at motion tend to stay at motion until they're operated by an outside force, things at rest tend to stay at rest unless operated by an outside force. Aquinas argues that everything must come from something. It's his argument from final or from uh, from first cause. And so that, that first cause for Aquinas and Aristotle has to be God because nothing can proceed from nothing. The, what we what exists must proceed from some prior existent state that in order to avoid the problem of infinite regress has to be its own preexistent state. I love that thought. And let me throw this at you because I, I've heard a lot of people say that. If, if we are, and I wholeheartedly agree that nothing can come from nothing, right? You, you can't start with nothing and create something. So that has to mean that something came before God. So what came before God? And if there was something before that, what came before that that came before God? There's no way to go. I forget the argument. Damn, it's, it's called something. Uh, yeah. But the idea is, right, you can't go back indefinitely forever. There has to be a moment where something came from nothing if we are going to buy the premise of there being this benevolent, all-knowing, omnipotent God. Sure. That's where the word God is ridiculously ambiguous. People use this word in all kinds of ways. So maybe a definitional moment will help our conversation today. Okay. Because, I mean, we use God and from inside a... A Christian perspective, people refer to God as this personal being who's communicating through the Bible and so on. From inside the ancient Greco-Roman pagan system, the, the gods are larger than life, human-looking beings that do all kinds of horrible things, but they're ontologically different. Where what I'm using, I, I don't want to appeal to either of those for this conversation. I'm kind of sticking in the philosophical sense of God as being this higher being who is different from every other order of existence that is philosophically necessary to explain our own reality. And in that sense, as I think if I remember the terminology correctly, the problem you were describing is the problem of infinite regress. Back and back and yeah. back. And we can always go one further cause. That's where Aristotle has no concept of a personal being. His God is more like a force. And, uh, but God is the solution to this problem that Aristotle says, is there has to be a first cause from which all other things come. The oak tree comes from an acorn. There must be an original oak tree. That oak tree had to come from some other source. The original source of all things is what we call God. And in which case, I, I think that that points to the fact that when we're talking about God, we have to be talking about some being, force, person, whatever it is we're talking about, is completely different than the, re source, the, the things of reality that we're familiar with. Because, of course, all people come from prior people, all Animals in a species come from prior animals. Even we could go back geologically to contend, depending on your geologist that you go to. I mean, every source of earth or stone comes from some prior substance. 
But whenever we're talking about God, we're talking about the being or force or thing or creature, whatever, who is self-existent and is not caused. And that that is the source of all other things. So that at least, I think that's the argument. I, I think there's something there logically that is necessary to avoid this problem of going back and back and back ad infinitum. I think you're right. I think the for me, the idea starts with what they theorize is the beginning of the universe is that whole big bang, right? That, that mm-hmm. in, if I'm arguing the opposite end of this, right? If, if I'm saying, sure. well, there has to be a God, my argument is, well, he obviously exists and he, he started with the big bang. He created this big bang. And that, to me, that's why the idea of, of creationism and evolution work together perfectly because God created this big bang and then he stepped back and, and let it, build to whatever it built into, which is why he said you have free will. Free will to me isn't just free will for us, for mankind. Free will is the free will of the universe to evolve into whatever it created or whatever it's into now, I should say. That's a fascinating idea. And I'd I, I have to think about that a bit more because that, that seems to me that that would really destroy the uniqueness of human beings having free will. Because if I'm understanding you correctly, does the tree in my front yard have some level of free will? Definitely. So even without, so you would divorce free will and rationality. Those don't have to go together. No, I don't believe so. Wow. Does a thing that can't move have free will? Like does a rock have free will? That, it depends on how we're defining it, in my opinion. I would say yes, because of the fact that everything in existence comes from atoms and atoms themselves we know to have a form of intelligence, right? They, they behave in a certain way. We get down to the quantum level. We can watch how they behave and how they react and how they, they move within each other. To me, that has to be some form of intelligence and there has to be some form of free will guiding that. Short answer is yes. I wholeheartedly believe every rock, every tree, every piece of dirt, every planet has a free will of sorts. Oh, could you back up for just a second and tell me what you mean by intelligence? Because I'm having trouble understanding how an atom, I mean, I know how a person, I, mean, I can look at people and make a reasonable judgment about, aha, this person has a high level of intelligence. This person may have a great amount of emotional intuition, but not very much dem- demonstrable intelligence. I would not say my cat has intelligence, but it seems like you're talking about intelligence a different way. What do you mean by intelligence? Intelligence as in an ability to respond to to the world around it, I guess is, is a good way to put it, where it can take in information like like the electrons and the, the protons and the, the things inside that, that molecular level. We can watch them respond to the light around it, to the the environment it's in. Everything we place it in, it creates a different response. So it has to have some form of intelligence. And that intelligence had to have been put in there by something, whether you want to believe it's God or the universe or the all-knowing creator doesn't matter to me. You can call it what you want to call it. Something put that intelligence there. That's really that's a very interesting view because that's going to mean that That's a much broader view of intelligence than certainly I think philosophy traditionally kind of describes because that's not looking at 
That's not looking at the actual receiving of data and then the determination of what we ought to do. I'm just finished teaching Immanuel Kant. Uh, well, we're, we're still reading Kant. We've got one more section of the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals to cover. And Kant at least ties ethical responsibility to rationality. Would you say that intelligence and rationality are the same or is there a difference there? Fundamentally, there has to be a difference. We are, in my opinion, very narcissistic to assume that the only form of intelligence is that which resembles us. I, I think when we divorce the idea of intelligence has to resemble something human, something rational, something that's able to emote and take that information in and respond to it in a certain specific path, free will, whatever you want to call it. I think when we take that away from it, it, it opens that door to, ah, well, intelligence can be deeper. It can go further. It can be conscious, right? The idea of consciousness. We can we can add that to that as well. I think everything has, if at least in my opinion, when you take the Buddhist view on it, everything in existence has consciousness. If everything in existence has consciousness, then everything in existence has intelligence. Well, that's really interesting. Does that consciousness entail an ethical obligation to how we interact with everything that exists then? Yes. Okay. That's that's the very premise of Buddhism is to do no harm to any sentient being. We don't necessarily differentiate sentient beings being human or dog or cat. The idea is to do no harm to anything, to leave this earth better if possible than when you came to it. Which I think that that probably is our core level of difference then because the, the Christian perspective would look at that and say that humans bear a unique rationality and they bear that unique rationality because the doctrine of the image of God, where God creates all men and women in his own image from uh, Genesis 128, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And that human rationality and even human linguistic ability, the ability to name things and to express self-consciousness is a unique property of human of humans because of who God is and that humans have a responsibility to all of creation that's but it's a responsibility of stewardship of taking care of all of creation that's been entrusted to them by the creator but then there's a unique but then we see these different properties of humans where to a much lesser degree, but in a similar way, because God has free will to do as he determines, he gives that same property to humans for free will, but they have that property of free will that lets, that is based on a rational understanding of a real choice in a way that I think traditional philosophy, at least certainly up through uh, certainly Aquinas and Descartes, gets kind of muddied by the time you get to Hume and, and so on, but Kant tries to revive it. Rational beings are able to make choices that are different in nature than the kind of choices that non-rational creatures make. And rational creatures, because they are able to understand mentally the choices that they make, they carry an ethical responsibility for those choices. But that ethical responsibility doesn't extend to non-rational creatures. If, if, a dog has, if a dog has rabies and attacks the children on my street, I think Immanuel Kant would say, I am morally obligated to shoot the dog, uh, but I don't prosecute the dog for a crime of murder. In the same way that if a man knew that he had a sexually transmitted disease and then intentionally spread that sexually transmitted disease through intercourse with a variety of partners, he's morally guilty of something 
there because he knew the consequences of what he's spreading in a way that a rabid dog is not morally guilty for what it's doing. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a difference in our two perspectives? Yes and no. You have to forgive me. I am very much a novice when it comes to philosophy. I forget who it is, but the idea of right and wrong aren't a definitive thing, right? You you can't have a moral judgment without their without the consequence, right? So the consequence determines whether it's moral or immoral, right or wrong, good or bad, right? Philosophy as a discipline is really broad. That's one strand. That section is called consequentialism. That's a more, more modern philosophy tends to go in that direction. There is a totally different strand that argues right and wrong are based on whether or not you fulfill your duty. That's the deontological end of things. And that argues that an action is right or wrong in and of itself, regardless of the consequences. But so there are different philosophers who would line up under both of those. Yeah, yeah, totally. What I'm getting at, is, though, is something is only inherently right based on its consequence. To claim that the dog has no moral obligation to the bite and can't be persecuted for, right, for murder, for biting somebody or, or whatever. I, I would agree to a point, but I think there is a level of responsibility that we, I mean, we obviously can't punish the dog in any way that he'll perceive because his idea of consciousness and morality and, and the world around him is very different from the way we perceive. But I, I do think there is a level of responsibility that has to be placed on that creature. That's why we are obliged to kill it. In a way, it's responsible for its behavior because it harms somebody else. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does, but would you recognize a difference between that and the other example? The, the guy who has herpes and doesn't care and just still sleeps with 15 other women and gives them all herpes, but he consciously knows that through participating in sexual intercourse with these other women, he's going to give them herpes. Is, he mo is there some greater level of guilt because he consciously knows the results of his actions? Yes, but what if the opposite is true? What if he has no concept that he has this no idea, but he's still out there doing the same thing. He's getting multiple partners and spreading it. Why is his consequence any different because he knows he has it versus the fact that he doesn't? And I, I agree it should be. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be. Sure. But my point is, why are they different? Why, why does one form of we'll call bad or evil different from the other? They both have the exact same end result. More people are infected with this deadly disease. Sure. Well, the consequence is identical, but I at least would argue the, uh, in this case, let's just, uh, I, I always use imaginary bill as my example, because I don't want to actually name real people in these sort of ethical scenarios. Let's, let's call him Bill. For Let's say Bill knows that he has this disease. I think Bill now, once the knowledge he has obligates Bill to a certain course of action, once he knows that he has been infected with a sexually transmitted disease, it's no longer just about whether or not Bill wants to engage in this activity. Him engaging in this activity will, without exception, will cause harm to other human beings. And I would argue that his knowledge now complicates his own action. It now forces a new level of awareness that, oh, it's not just about whether or not I am going to cause, he is himself the cause of this harm to other people. So at the point where Bill knows this, that changes the moral value of Bill's action or not. When he, at the point where he harms another individual intentionally, that's morally more difficult than the one who, the guy who just has this infection, doesn't know it, and is unconsciously spreading it. 
So my argument here is that his conscious awareness, his rationality creates a different level of ethical reasoning than a non-conscious creature or non-conscious being. I agree, but let me throw this at you. I think you're sure. absolutely right. I will argue that exactly what you're saying is true, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think way back in antiquity, all of the higher ups in society, the ruling class had to come up with a way to control the vast majority of people. And like you just said, what better way to control the vast majority of people than by giving this all-knowing, omnipotent being that is giving you these morals that you now know, you now know not to kill, steal, covet thy neighbor, all of these things, if we're going Christian with this, you now know all of these things, you're given this knowledge. Now when you do these things, I am fundamentally required to punish you versus before you knew them and you did them. I don't have a leg to stand on to punish because you didn't know. You had no idea. It's like the guy spreading diseases who doesn't know he has them. You can't punish him the same way as the guy who now knows. So we created this God as a way to punish people for what they now know. You said something earlier about being a novice in philosophy. Are you aware that that is Nietzsche's argument about God? I am not. Okay. That that was actually a really effective summary of Nietzsche's view of morality and God. So c congrats, Matthew. You, you're, you're better at philosophy maybe than you thought. Apparently. No, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's in Nietzsche's book, A Genealogy of Morals, where he basically proposes the idea that God is a social construct and that God was uh, invented by the uh, the powerful as a way to create what he calls a slave morality and to keep the masses in check. And that there's, he opposes to that what he calls a master morality that really is all these aristocratic virtues of the warriors, where for the, the warrior, what's good is to be good at killing other people. But as a high level aristocrat, he's going to teach the masses not to kill. And the opposition there is between the slave morality, which is very religious and typically for Nietzsche, very Christian, versus the master morality of the uh, Germanic, uh, Germanic barbarians and what, what keeps the powerful people in charge. So I saw it was interesting that you, that literally is Nietzsche's argument. So yeah, good, good stuff there. As far as a response to that, I think I would, I mean, I would argue that what you actually have in a traditional morality, and part of the reason that uh, Nietzsche correctly, I mean, he calls all that, it's basically like some people made all this up in order to keep folks in check. And that once the laws are there, they're kind of uh, guilting you into obedience. I would argue that actually the, the traditional morality are really the, it's the strongest level of laying out what it actually takes to have a good life. And it's not really causing people to just be guilty for the sake of being guilty and that they were innocent until they discovered the law. What actually happens when people do things that are wrong, their, their guilt convicts them and they know that they're wrong. And then the consequences of their actions provide further evidence I feel like I'm rambling. I'm not quite sure I followed your question. Could you repeat your question for me? Let me see if I can recover this. Basically, the the idea that God was created as a means of control, like the person who's spreading the disease right. can't be held responsible for it if he doesn't know. Once we're given the knowledge of God and his law, 
we are now responsible for our behavior versus before we had this knowledge, we couldn't be held responsible. So now we have a better means of controlling the mass with the smallest number of people. So God in that understanding becomes kind of a mechanism of control, which of course all comes back to the original question that we started with. I mean, if God exists, then his own existence imposes a standard of morality on what he created. In which case, that kind of Nietzschean response is sort of dodging the actual reality of God's existence. If God does not exist, then the creation of a moral code, you kind of shelled out several of the Ten Commandments. So Moses coming down off the mountain saying, God wrote these tablets with his finger, therefore these are the rules. Well, then clearly Moses has to be making it up if God doesn't exist. And the entirety of the various different human experiences and records of God's existence have to be false in some way. So we're really right back around to this fundamental question. So much of human morality is tied to God's existence. Uh, it's one of the longstanding arguments, the moral argument. We're back again to Aquinas. Aquinas argues that also when people say use the word good, they are really responding to some recognition, some hint of God's goodness in the world, and that God is the ultimate referent to which we mean when we say this is a good action or this is a bad action. When we call some action good, we're saying it looks a little bit like God. When we call an action evil or wrong, we're saying it does not resemble God. And God is the highest good. He's the greatest referent that we appeal to. If God is a lie, then all of those references, all of those morals, all those arguments are deceptions. But if God is real, then in fact, God himself imposes this kind of moral standard that he's calling his creation to uphold. But are we to assume that the only way for, for mankind to be good is to assume that there is a God? Can we not have morals and ethics and and higher judgments and and be good people so to speak without there being this being called god i know plenty of atheists in my life who are amazingly giving caring loving people who assume and think that the moment they die none of those things they did matter they're not getting to re reference the show The Good Place my wife watches. I love The Good Place. It's such <laughs> a wonderful show. <laughs> I haven't seen enough of it yet. She watches it without me. But what I've seen is great. The reference, those points, right? On that right, show, you're getting right. points. Well, if I'm atheist and I don't believe in an afterlife, all of the points I'm gaining from all of these good behaviors I'm doing don't mean anything. So I don't think we have to have a God or belief in a God to it be a good person. I think wholeheartedly, and this is a, a basic fundamental idea in Buddhism, everybody is good. Everybody is compassionate. Everybody has within them that ability. It's just born in you. You can see it in little kids. Little kids inherently will do things that are moral and good if they haven't been messed with in, in, in any way to alter that. Right. If a kid is given free reign to be himself, he will inherently be good. Let me make two responses to that. Um, the first is I was hoping you would bring this up because <laughs> back on February 22nd at 2018 at North Carolina State University, there was a public debate on this very question where you have a theist 
theistic philosopher going up against an atheistic philosopher. Uh, William Lane Craig is the theist and Craig Weilenberg was the atheist. And they were there representing their answers to this question. What is the best account of objective moral values and duties? Where what they both laid out that I thought was really absolutely fascinating is that everybody wants to be a good person. There, there's agreement on that across the theistic spectrum and the atheistic spectrum. Everybody wants to be able to say they're a moral person. The question is that they were debating is which of their camps, theism, uh, God does exist, and atheism, God does not exist, has the best objective account for why you should be moral and what it entails to be moral. William Lane Craig made a very traditional argument asserting that God exists in some kind of spiritual plane, and that because he created people, they are accessing his nature to as the and trying to look more like him as the ground for their objective morals. And that's, that's how he could kind of defend an objective morality that's not based purely on someone's subjective desire to do X, Y, or Z. I was really fascinated. I wanted to hear Craig Weilenberg make make a case. I, I wanted to hear the atheistic case for an objective moral value, something more than, well, I feel compassion for these people, these animals, this cause, so I will help it. That's a subjective one. I wanted to hear his account for an objective morality. This is right. This is wrong. Here's why in the absence of God. And he could not make a case. So there's a longstanding, of course, subjective morals are all about what each person thinks is right. He could not make the case for an objective moral value system. And I'd still love to hear that. But secondly, you bring up the case of children and the statement that people are inherently good. I would push back on that pretty, pretty heavily just at the level of noting that children have to be taught to behave correctly. They do not naturally know what is the right response. And when left to their own devices, children are incredibly selfish creatures. My wife helps run our, uh, our church's nursery. And so I occasionally will end up in there helping out with the kids. And we're talking kids as young as eight months old. I've also been in the three and four-year-old's room. These are very young kids. I can't tell you how many times this exact scene has played out on a Sunday morning where the kids are there and each of them has a toy. And then a new kid is dropped off in the nursery and there are probably a dozen toys that are not being played with. And the new kid will go over and will seize a toy that is already being played with. And now we have a power struggle between 10 month olds where they're each wanting this toy. There is plenty of to there are plenty of toys around they could play with. And instead, it has to be the one toy that's already being played with. I think there's an inherent selfishness at the core of human nature. I would disagree with you that in saying that people are inherently good. I think people are actually inherently evil and that it is part of the task of education to give everyone a basic level of restraint on their evil so that we can actually work together as, as people. Otherwise, we are left in sort of a state of nature chaos sort of like a Mad Max movie sort of thing where everyone is grouping together around a power wielder and everyone's seeking their own benefit. It takes a lot of effort to get past internal selfishness and actually seek someone else's good. So th those are at least my thoughts on your last point. I know you said from the beginning we were we're probably getting close to time. What, where, where do you want to take us now? I'm totally good with going a little longer because cool. I think this okay. is great. 
two things come to my mind from that. I think, and I don't know if this answers the the question of subject versus object goodness from the, the atheist standpoint. To me, the answer to that lies in the fact that regardless of, of a God or, or an afterlife that gives me points, if you will, for my good behavior, I think there's an inherent idea in mankind that the better we do, the better I do. So it's inherently part of what improves my selfish life to make sure that all those around me are are in a good, caring, emotionally stable place. It's a selfish benefit, but it's a benefit nonetheless that drives us to want to be compassionate and loving to everybody around us, regardless of, of a God. The other thing for me is the idea of children. I, I would have to push back on you on this one because, hear me out. Excellent. I don't think there has ever been a child born that has not been the product of those that came before him, meaning everybody in our life is selfish to some extent. We see it the moment we're born. Everybody around us is selfishly seeking their own needs. Kids. I think everybody would agree kids are sponges. They soak in information and retain it and use it and regurgitate it. So if everything I'm watching around me is people being selfish, people seeking their own good, whether they're conscious of it or not, I'm going to internalize that and think that that's how we're to behave versus, and I don't know how we could test this theory. I'm sure there's a way, but versus taking a child who's never been engaged in, in a selfish environment how would he behave? What would be his baseline behavior if he had never been exposed to people in a selfish environment? I think it would be good. I think it would be compassionate. I'm trying throughout this whole conversation to keep this as philosophical as possible and not <laughs> theological. There is at least one theological answer to that last question, where traditional Christian theology would argue that every human being that has ever been born is the descendant of Adam and Eve. And because of their initial sin, every human nature has been automatically, uh, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, bent towards evil. We're not morally neutral. We're already kind of oriented towards evil. And with, of course, one exception. And that's the the one person in uh, in Christian theology who is not uh, the child of two humans, but is instead fully human and fully God. And Jesus is the exception to that rule. And so I would point to, I mean, uh, the gospel accounts are the depiction of one person who it's not the surroundings for that make the difference though because he's of course born in a manger grow, Jesus grows up in Nazareth and grows to maturity in first century Palestine and it's not the surroundings it's the actual genetic origin i mean it's for him and this is why there's been so many books over the last 2000 years debating the literal oddly enough genetic heritage of Jesus that Theologically, he must be the son of God the Father and Virgin Mary in order to get a fully human and fully divine nature. But he's the only example of the perfect human. So if we're talking about any other human being, I think from the, a theological point of view, we're going to end up with still sinful creatures. Now, philosophically, uh, again, I'm just going to I'm fascinated by the, uh, the way ideas spread or when people come up with the similar ideas. You're once again articulating another well-known philosophical perspective. Have you read uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau by any chance? I've not. He was a 17th or 18th century French uh, philosopher, and he articulated exactly what you're, you're voicing. He wrote in his novel, Emile, 
where uh, his his conviction is that people are bad because of their circumstances and that they then so he creates a novel where the perfectly innocent Emil is born and grows up with his perfect innocence preserved. And his that perspective is a is a pretty solid one philosophically. We're arguing if we can somehow get the surroundings correct, we will get we'll then get the we'll we'll get much better people. Every time that has been tested over the last 250 years, it has not gone terribly well. I uh, we we still have bad people. <laughs> I mean, it, and we, we I, I would be curious how you would if you're right and people are intrinsically good. Like, uh, how do you account for rapists and murderers and incestuous family members and people who have all the who have power who we're in the hashtag Me Too era, it seems like. So I mean, like, how do you explain Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein and the folks who, uh, or even Bill Clinton for that matter, the people who use their power to abuse other folks? Like, how do you account for that if people are all intrinsically good? What I'm going to say right now is probably going to make a few people angry, and I'm okay with that. Hit me with all of your anger after this, guys. I'm totally good. It runs up podcast numbers so great. <laughs> I love when we get aflamed on Apple Review. <laughs> it's, it's great. I have a feeling that's going to happen when I make this statement. I don't see any of those things as bad. We had another episode. I think it already has been released on Good and Evil. I don't think that evil is in the way we perceive it. Those things that you're saying, the the murder, the rape, the incest, the all of that, to me anyway, and in my view and my probably really bad interpretation of, of Buddhism, can't be bad because the idea in, in Buddhism is you're to gain enlightenment. Enlightenment is all knowledge, right? To know everything. The only way you can know everything is to experience everything. So the only way, and the beauty of it too, is in Buddhism, there is no separate soul. Everybody is you, you are everybody. So every experience that happens on this planet from the moment we first step foot on it till now has been one soul experiencing it, gaining its enlightenment. And time doesn't exist in the way that we perceive it, where it's linear. The soul that is in this universe has already gained enlightenment. We know that because of Buddha, right? It still has to experience all of those things. So this soul still has to rape, has to murder, has to do all of those evil things at its base level, right? As the soul gains enlightenment, it becomes less drawn towards those bad, those evil, those, those things that we perceive to be wrong and bad. It's only in its first stages of gaining enlightenment, of entering this universe, that it does those things. So I know I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but for me, that those aren't bad because those are my soul, our soul, as a new being, as a new soul. It has to have those first experiences to gain enlightenment. So they're not bad. They're just educational. They're just gaining momentum towards a better rebirth towards better karma towards better everything till I get to that point where I am now fully enlightened. I am a Buddha and I can move on to Nirvana and help a new soul gain what I have gotten. That is absolutely fascinating. I, I've had a couple of Buddhist friends over the years, uh, a debate student I've met at a couple of tournaments who is just, he's far better read than I am in the field and a colleague a couple years ago who is, 
Uh, very interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anyone articulate Buddhism in quite that way. And I think it ultimately goes back once again to our differences in understanding of God. Because if I'm understanding, based on what you just said, the goal is for each person to become Buddha or become a Buddha. If we're dealing with a single soul, that's itself a fascinating, fascinating idea. I would look at this very, very differently because Christian ethics does answer the question, yes, God exists and it is the God of the Bible. And I'm going to once again stew together philosophy and theology there, I think, a little bit. It's, they, they seem really impossible. We, we both seem to be mixing our, our theological views in with our philosophical conversation. Yes, definitely. Okay, good. I'm glad we're just agreed on that point. And we can, we can do that. And people will either love it or hate it either way. Yep. For Christianity, all of those things that I mentioned as bad are ultimately wrong because they are a violation of the nature of God expressed in each individual person. One of the philosophical schools I've become very interested in the last couple of years is called personalism. It's got a variety of people attached to it from the Judeo-Christian perspective and both Catholic and Protestant on the Christian side and a variety of views on the Jewish side. Um, but they argue that ultimately the God of the Bible is a person and that we have to understand him as a person. And as person, God is dialogical. He is speaking, and there are others who are listening and are speaking back. And as person, God has deserves infinite respect, and he is of an infinite value as an end. And so when he creates humans, he the personhood of humans is attached because of the personhood of God. And for a personalist, this is why you and I can have a dialogue, why we have rationalism, why we can use words and understand each other, and why we can even agree and disagree in various ways, because that's a property of persons. But with that personhood comes an infinite amount of dignity to each human being that so each human is owed dignity by other human beings and all rational creatures. So because of that dignity, then when we harm each other, then we are harming the unique dignity, the unrepeatable dignity of each individual person. Each child has a unique dignity. And so that child's dignity is precious and valuable and deserves protection and respect from all adults and other children. Uh, each adult's person, each, each uh, I would even extend this to unborn persons as well. They have a unique, unrepeatable dignity. And so each person, when that person is harmed, whether the examples we've been using, whether we're talking murder, rape, or uh, incest, or some sort of uh, power bargaining, sexual favors, whatever, all of those are irreparable harms to each human person. And that view is, I mean, is really the basis of the Western legal system as well. It's why the government, it's why the state is just in punishing the criminal. It's why uh, it is wrong for one to murder someone else. And so I, I don't really know how else to respond to that. I, the idea of a single soul, sort of an oversoul, if you will, that we're all part of, seems to really negate the importance of any individual person. You and I don't really matter at all in that sort of grand cosmic evolution of the soul sort of picture. I would find quite depressing, honestly. I find it quite enlightening. I, I love that idea because I guess for a selfish reason, if I am every soul and every soul is me, then I have essentially been able to achieve everything I've ever wanted. I grew up wanting to be a rock star, wanting to get on that stage and perform for millions of people. 
in essence, I've done that. If I am my idol of all idols, James Hetfield, getting up on stage <laughs> to play in front of Moscow and 2 million people, my soul has achieved that. That to me is beautiful because I have done those things and all of those things are now part of who I am. For me, it, it takes away the depressing end of, well, my energy that I've stolen from the universal soul doesn't matter because it, it does matter because it's helping lead that universal soul to the ultimate goal of, of enlightenment and nirvana. You know, we, we are, of course, right back to one of the first big questions of philosophy. This is going back to uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides and their debate about whether is reality one or is reality many? <laughs> Yes. That was, that was one of the big pre-Socratic questions. And of course, uh, it sounds like you're over there on the side of reality is one, and I'm over here on the side of reality is many. That is really fascinating. I, I don't know that... Yeah, I'm just going to pose the question and uh, feel free to ignore it or we can go elsewhere if you don't want to <laughs> touch on this. Does it bother right. you that that seems that... that I mean, because you haven't played as that rock star that you mentioned in front of 2 million people. Does the lack of correspondence between this idea and what has at least physically happened, does that, does that lack of correspondence bother you at all? Or is that, is that not, that doesn't seem uh, dissonant at all? It did at first. It took me, and if, I wish I could get my wife in here because she can tell you when this, when I first came across this thought and, and it took months for it to sink into my head and to, to really gain traction and, and to become something that I, I can grab a hold of and go, yes, this makes sense. At first, yeah, it was depressing. It was awful to think that I got to experience that, but I didn't, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like my mm -hmm. part of my soul didn't get that experience. And it, it, yeah, it's depressing at first. But the more I, I sank into it, the more I pondered it and meditated on it and, and let it marinate in my head, the more that idea became absolutely beautiful. Hmm. Because, and I, I can't think of a good way to put this other than the fact that all of our experiences accumulate into what we will become. And all of those experiences have happened to me, to you, to the soul that we are. And I love that idea. It's fascinating. It's, it's an interconnection. It also to me is, is why we must follow, if you will, the godly path of being compassionate and loving towards everybody, because when you harm another you're essentially harming you you're doing whatever deed you're doing to you and i don't know too many people minus some that might be mentally unstable who really want to harm themselves sure as you were describing that i think there's 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 pieces of that impulse, I think, in a lot of different organizations. I know for years I flirted with Catholicism a little bit, in part because the uh, the Catholic idea of a universal church was something I found very appealing. I grew up and, and remain in the Southern Baptist strand of Christianity, and we Baptists are very good at emphasizing the individual, autonomous local church. But there's something that is very attractive about a universal church that stretches across time and really that idea of a universal community. And there's certainly plenty in scripture and the Bible about the community of saints and the idea of all of the saints across the ages standing together in eternity. And yet there does seem to me to be a key difference between this, these Christian larger communities and what you're describing. And that's the, the maintaining of the individual person. And I think that's, that's the key and I think that ultimately takes us right back to a question of we may both, I, I, it sounds to me, 
I know Buddhism goes back. I've heard different Buddhists talk about the question of God in very different ways. Some who say, no, God does not exist. Some who talk about the soul idea you're describing as the evolution of God. I've also heard Buddhists talk about the Buddha is basically the Buddhist term for God. And this is just an East-West dialogue difference. But I think ultimately we're describing very different things. And the difference in our understanding of God is also the difference in our understandings of the way a lot of these other things work out about human nature and human society and what we believe about morality. Yes and no. I think from my understanding anyway, there isn't a a God in Buddhism as you would see him in Christianity as this guy in a white robe sitting up there with his big long beard making judgments on your life that doesn't exist what they're do- what does exist and if you want to call it god that's that's fine we can call it that is this universal overall place that we all sit i've heard it all kinds of different ways where people will say that yes to become a buddha is to become a god I don't subscribe to that. I don't necessarily believe that we are ever going to become a God. I think what we become, and I know it's probably splitting hairs, but is, is a perfect being. And I know that's how most people would describe God. To me, there can only be one God, right? We're, if we're talking God, we're talking the God. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in Buddhism, you are the God, if you want to call it that. Like I said, I prefer the thought of perfect being because that, alleviates the whole idea of there only being one. And I don't think I've answered your question (laughs) at all. That's fine. I think we're talking about the same thing, but in two different ideologies of the same thing. So to bring this around to wrap it up, because we're about an hour now, (laughs) which is cool. I love it. I wholeheartedly think that there isn't a God, but there is perfection. There are people who have gained perfect enlightenment. I think Jesus is an example of that. The Buddha is an example of that. Muhammad Mm. is an example of that. These are people who have gained perfect enlightenment, perfect knowledge, are then therefore perfect beings. And if it comforts you and and makes you feel better to call them connected to God or to call them God, that's wonderful. If that makes you a moral, valuable person who is willing to go out there and do good for other people for the sake of doing good for other people, I have nothing against that. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. But I personally cannot subscribe, and I know a lot of people in the same boat can't subscribe to the fact that there is this one person sitting up there judging all of our behavior. Just It bothers me. I understand the, the bothering. I just want to make two comments there. And uh, one of them is be my turn to make the comment that might get people uh, angry. Probably the first piece uh, I want to get at, let's get the angry one out of the way. I would want to take Jesus out of your list of people that you would say have achieved this kind of perfect being status. Honestly, would say the same thing about Muhammad, because I do think that there is a lot of whatever we say about these folks needs to be in alignment with what they say about themselves. And Jesus, at least, makes very extreme claims about himself. He makes the direct claim to be the son of Yahweh, the divine perfect being of the Old Testament, who is spirit and not body. In which case, he claims to be one of three, uh, the three in one. He's the second member of the Trinity. In which case, he's not claiming in any way to be a perfect being who is one of the, who is part of the oversoul, this great soul that is developing throughout time. And he's not claiming to have achieved enlightenment. He is claiming that he is literally God. 
which is why uh, there's various accounts in the Gospels where different groups of Jews attempt to stone him. They attempt to, uh, it's part of, it's why there's a trial the night before the crucifixion. They're not trying him for being a traitor to Rome or anything like that. They're trying him because he has made a theologically heretical claim for Judaism. He has claimed to be the biological son of God. And that is heresy, according to uh, the Orthodox Judaism of the day. And they were responding as, as good Jewish people in that day. I don't want to bring up all the, the Christian Jewish tension there, but that's, that's certainly there. Secondly, you brought up the idea of God as kind of an old white guy with a beard who's sitting in the clouds judging people. I just want to distinguish that view, which is certainly a popular view. It's part of our pop, uh, part of our cultural representation of God in 21st century America. I've seen that version of God in Family Guy and The Simpsons both. I'm pretty sure he's shown up in South Park, though they tend to have God be a, a Mormon blue dude with a nose or something. It's, it's weird. South Park goes in funny directions with that one. But that idea of God is not biblical. It's certainly not Christian. The Christian understanding of God is that God is the being who speaks in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and so on. He's the God who says, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he then created them. He's the God who calls to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, tells Abraham, go to the land that I am sending you. I will bless you and I will make you into a, uh, make you into a father of many nations. He's the God who speaks throughout the Old Testament to the prophets and the kings of Israel. He's the God who promises to send a savior uh, who will actually redeem all Israel and save mankind from their sins. And he's then the God who is born as Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 1, who preaches in Mark chapter 1, who's proclaimed to be the Logos in John chapter 1. Jesus then informs everyone about something that's hinted throughout the Old Testament and is made clear in the New Testament, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that all three are equal beings. They are equal in essence and distinct in persons, to use some of the language from the church councils in the 4th and 5th centuries, and that he tells the, the disciples that he is going to ascend to be with the Father, but he will send the Helper to be with them, and that the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will remind them of what he has said and will bring them into the knowledge of all truth. That's the God that Christianity proclaims. He is the creator and he is wholly good and he is of a wholly different essence than the rest of his creation. There's no comparing people to God. There's no saying that people are of like essence to God. And God's goodness is itself a comparison. If I can do one more school analogy, it's something like I have a couple students who are constitutionally incapable of failing assignments. They just will always get A's no matter what the assignment is. Well, I have other students who fail things regularly. The students who get an A are sort of they don't have to tell the other students, haha, you're worse than I am. The fact that they have those grades is itself a sort of judgment on the students who are close to failing, because the students who are close to failing should be doing better. The nature of God is a judgment on people's behavior just by how good he is and how less than good we are. But God is not sitting up in the clouds judging people in that same way, except that where God is is where people should one day be. And in order to 
be with God, it requires that we recognize that we are far less than him and need his help in order to be any better than we actually are. And that's where the whole process of repentance and forgiveness and the salvation of Jesus come into the story. All of that is the Christian concept of God. It's not simply a, oh, we behold that there's, a, we think there's a throne up there and there's a long bearded guy who's like, who's basically Santa Claus keeping track of a naughty and nice list. That's not, that's not the Christian idea of God. I know we're supposed to be wrapping up, but I can't help but ask this question because as you were talking, it kept popping into my head. I had to write it down finally. Would we then call God not anything other than an energy? I would go with the biblical language there. There's a fascinating scene in John chapter 4 where Jesus goes to uh, the nearby country of Samaria and he does the unthinkable and talks to a woman. In his context, that was cultural context. Men did not talk to women who they weren't married to. Jesus has this long discussion with the woman at the Samaritan well. Jesus ends up confronting her with some habits of sin in her life. Before he does that, she tries to kind of dodge and create a theological discussion. She asks him, uh, where should we worship God? Because we Samaritans think it's on this special mountain, and you Jews think it's on that special mountain. Where should we worship God? And Jesus turns to her and says, God is spirit and truth. The hour is coming and has now come when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. So I would not, I don't know that I'm terribly comfortable with the language of energy, because that makes, that creates all kinds of bizarre Star Wars connections that that I get uncomfortable with. But I certainly would begin with saying, we humans are physical creatures. We are embodied spirits, to use another theological term, but we are most comfortable with the physical realm of existence. God, in terms of God the Father, the Creator God, and God the Son, or God the Father, is spirit. God the Son unites spirit and flesh in himself, is the doctrine of the Incarnation, and it's why the Incarnation is critical to Christianity. Because Christianity says, actually, in his person, Jesus unifies these two different planes of existence. But God and kind of the big G, God the Father, proper God sense, God is spirit. He is not flesh. He does not change. He is immutable. Anyway, I could go on for a while, but yes, I think that answers. Does, does that answer your question? I don't know. If it, it does. does. Okay, it does. Good. The way you were talking about it, and, and I've, I've heard several people make that comment before about how God isn't necessarily a thing. It's, it's an idea. It's an energy. It's this thing that you feel. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a, a biblical scholar in any way, shape, or form. There's never actually a description of anything that, that is God. God never presents himself in a physical form. It's always a voice or an energy or, mm-hmm. or a something you can't actually see. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think there are various places in the Bible where uh, like the Psalms will talk about the breath of God's nostrils. Or that might be Job. That biblical scholars will call that an anthropomorphization of God, where God is ascribed with human characteristics, but we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have a nose, so he's not going with his nostrils in some weird way. That's that's describing that to God. So, but yeah, Abraham hears a voice. There are probably the closest, there's a couple Old Testament vision passages that come to mind where uh, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6 that he is brought up to heaven and he sees God. The same thing happens in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has dreams 
But in each of these cases, we're dealing with some sort of passage between two different realms. Uh, the same thing happens in Genesis where Jacob has the dream of Jacob's ladder. He sees a ladder that's going from heaven to earth, and he sees angels going up and down the ladder. And all of those, I think, are trying to describe this sort of uh, movement between two different planes of existence. Augustine talks about it in terms of God is outside of time. We live inside of time. And for God, all things are happening in, an inst in a continual eternal presence. But in this world, we assume we perceive time linearly and that we experience it that way. But God does not because he's in a different plane of existence. Okay. I like that. I, I, I would think that's maybe a good place to end this without – because I could go on for another hour or two on this whole topic quite easily. <laughs> it, it's a fascinating topic. It's one that – it's certainly that um, C.S. Lewis in his book Abolition of Man talks about how there are a few pieces that it seems like every human culture has contemplated, and he thinks that universality points to their reality. The question of God's existence and the fact that between 80 and 95% of humans throughout recorded history have agreed, yes, God does exist. He takes as certainly a point of proof. I would certainly argue it certainly adds to, looks at the interestingness and the importance of the question. Uh, definitely. So to wrap this up in probably a really, really crappy package, I think we're in agreement on the fact that there is an existence of a God, but I think what we're in and is a disagreement on his form and function. I think I would agree with that. I mean, we're 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 in agreement that there has to be uh, some sort of higher metaphysical reality, uh, which I think you use the term nirvana as where we're going. Uh, I would be more comfortable with traditional Christian language of a spiritual realm, mm -hmm. heaven, that sort of thing. But we're in disagreement about whether God is an energy or a person, or sort of a force, or a state of existence that the soul might be heading towards versus a person who has communicated with us as persons in some other way. Cool. I love it. I almost forgot. Before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to share with everybody how they can reach you, where they can get a hold of you. I'm pretty sure that you've got a podcast as well. So share that with everybody, if you would, please. I appreciate the opportunity, Matt. That's that's really kind of you. I'm a high school humanities teacher and also a debate coach. I currently teach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Every month or two months, the National Speech and Debate Association releases debate resolutions that nationwide, there's something like 20,000, between 20 and 50,000 high school students who are involved in debate competitions will study and research and write cases on. And we thought it might be interesting. What if we do a podcast that does initial resolution analysis on those resolutions when they're released? One of my debate students, a guy named Ethan, he was trying to come up with ideas of ways we could get more people interested in debate. And I suggested, you know what? I've been wanting to start a podcast. What if we do a podcast together? We're called What's the Res? You can find us on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts. We're on CastBox. We use Podbean. You can find everything about us on our website, whatstherez.com, facebook.com slash whatstherez. We're on Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram at whatstherez underscore. We also have a premium side. Right now, we do premium debates where we record debates, formal debates between people who are not experts in the topic. We publish one episode a month. Those are available for $3 a month or $30 for a year-long pass. And you can find those at whatstherez.podbean.com slash premium. That's all of our stuff. And we, we have a lot of fun with it. We should hit episode 100.
100 by the end of February. So I'm pretty excited about that it. That sounds quite fascinating. I will definitely have to check that out. I'm intrigued now. Sounds to me like, and I want to say this before we go off the air because I think it's important. Sounds to me like you are one of those teachers that we need more of in the world. Somebody who is engaging their students in a way that is going to connect with them and keep them interested in education in a lifelong way. I thank you for that. There's not enough teachers out there like you. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you are doing for the next generation and the one after that and the one after that and however long you choose to be in that profession. I appreciate that. I think it matters an awful lot that we have teachers who have firm convictions that they form through careful thought and study, but that also teach in such a way that helps students to both understand kind of the possibilities within the intellectual inheritance that is their education, but also the importance that they have to come to their convictions through their own, their own studies. I don't expect any of my students to just hear me say something, aha, now I know what the answer is because Mr. Herring said so. Well, I do expect that my students will take my classes and they will have a better understanding of either literature or philosophy and that they're able to articulate their views and be better prepared for when they next come around to studying those subjects. We have a lot of fun. It definitely sounds like it. Well, I had a lot of fun today. I don't know about you. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you you for doing it. And I wholeheartedly think this was a, a valuable end of season episode. So thank you so much, Josh, for doing this for me. And on that note, guys, we will see you next season. Uh, before I go next season, I am fascinated about, and maybe you'll, you can join me on this. Next season, we're exploring philosophical thought experiments. Oh. Yeah, I'm excited. Look for that next season. Maybe I'll drag you on again if you're interested. We'll, we'll do one together. We spent a lot of time on Rene Descartes' thought experiment. We've been, Immanuel Kant has kind of four examples that he keeps running his categorical imperative through that I think might constitute a thought experiment. That sounds like a fascinating way to set up a season. I hope so. I'm excited about it. On that note, guys, thanks for joining me. If you have an opinion on this and you want to share it, by all means, get a hold of myself and maybe Josh on his show, and we will gladly debate this topic with you further. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again next season. Okay, so there it is. Is it philosophy? Go to our website at www.isitphilosophy.com and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter and Facebook as well. Help us grow by going onto iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe. And take a moment and leave a review. Until next time, question everything, seek your truth, and don't be afraid to speak your truth.